This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Records for heat and extreme rain are breaking all over the world. We find out climate change is not the future, it is now. Texas is used to heat, but never this hot this early in the year. That heat wave stretched over 2,000 miles, 3,200 kilometers, across the south and up the Atlantic coast. Within the same week, Europe was unseasonably hot. It doesn't get to 30 degrees C, 86 Fahrenheit, in early May in Berlin, but it did. Europe got summer in spring this year. But the terrible tragic heat boiled up in Pakistan and across northern India. It started mid-March and continued into May. These places do get hot, but this was hellish. India experienced its hottest March in the 122 years since records began. The fourth hottest April followed, and it still cooked through May. For the Indian capital, New Delhi, the heat went over 110 degrees Fahrenheit, 43 degrees C. According to NASA, at night, Delhi and suburbs stayed over 95 degrees Fahrenheit, 35 degrees Celsius. Some area villages stayed above 102 degrees, 39 C. That is deadly. Not everyone has air conditioning, and very high demand caused blackouts in some parts of India and Pakistan. But if the body cannot cool down at night, the following day can be fatal. Let's hear a short clip from DWTV, the German national broadcaster, on May 16, 2022. More than a dozen people have died in India in the past two months due to a severe heat wave. Experts blame high temperatures driven by climate change. Over the weekend, a temperature of 49.2 degrees Celsius was recorded in the capital Delhi. Now, anyone who's been to India knows it gets hot, but 49.2 degrees is something else entirely. And India has been experiencing this since March, which has already been the hottest on record. Through most of March and April, the Indian subcontinent looked like this. Severely hot temperatures everywhere. Heat waves aren't unusual in India, but so early in the year with such severity certainly is. It was worse in Pakistan. The city of Nawabsha almost reached its former high of 122.4 degrees Fahrenheit, over 50 degrees C. That is thought to be the hottest April temperature ever recorded in the Northern Hemisphere. This time, Nawabsha, Pakistan, reached 121.1 degrees Fahrenheit, 49.5 C. Again, from DWTV, May 16. For neighboring Pakistan, it was the hottest April in 61 years. And since then, the heat wave has remained relentless in the country. Last weekend, a city in southern Pakistan recorded the highest temperature in South Asia so far this year, 51 degrees Celsius in Jacobabad. Life in the city is now dominated by attempts to cope with the heat. Many people, especially the very young and the elderly, are suffering from heat stroke. And as we heard earlier, experts place much of the blame for the region's extreme heat and climate change. We are shown an outdoor brick kiln in Pakistan, still running, with workers in the insane heat. A worker is throwing dozens of bricks onto the back of a donkey. The donkey looks as though it will drop dead at any minute. I feel terrible for the donkey. But do you think those workers are in less danger, that they want to be there? The laborers are paid by the day. They need each day's meager pay to buy food, likely for several people. 
Work or starve? The top UK weather agency, the Met Office, just released a special assessment on this astonishing heat wave in Pakistan and northern India. In a press release May 18, they say, quote, The chances of a record-breaking heat wave in northwest India and Pakistan has been made over 100 times more likely because of climate change. The study shows that the natural probability of a heat wave exceeding the average temperature in 2010 is once in every 312 years. In the current climate, accounting for climate change, the probabilities increase to once in every 3.1 years. And by the end of the century, the study, incorporating climate change projections, shows this will increase to once every 1.1 year. That ends the quote from the Met Office. So the dice in this climate casino are loaded for increasing, escalating catastrophes for Pakistan and northern India and so many other places in the world. This spring, almost a billion people suffered through extreme heat driven upward by 200 years of burning fossil fuels, mostly in Europe and North America. The people of Pakistan and India did not bring this climate breakdown upon themselves. Yes, they can make global warming even worse by continuing to count on coal for electricity. Yes, India's energy decisions will affect us all. I am working to arrange an expert call to India for a coming program. According to NASA, half the greenhouse gases we put up there came since 1980. It's all pretty recent. And one quarter just since the year 2000 when we were all supposedly climate-aware. They'd held lots of climate conferences by the year 2000, and nearly a quarter of our greenhouse gases came since then. Carbon dioxide was 410 parts per million in 2010. The latest official monthly measurement for April 2022 was 417 parts per million, but the atmosphere went over 420 parts per million in May. We bumped carbon in the atmosphere by 10 parts per million in 10 years and the rate of increase is increasing. This is why oppressive heat, extreme rains, or drought, extreme everything, it has arrived. It can and will get worse. How bad things get this century depends on whether we do or do not control greenhouse gas pollution. As our next guest will tell us, our actions really decide this question. What is our addiction to oil, gas, and coal worth? The former normal, what does it cost in suffering, excess death, and extinction of species? Surely humans can find a better way. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Let's get to our two guests. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign up, just the latest info, free for all, ecoshock.org. Climate breakdown. Now we are in the fight of our lives. Two scientists lay it out in stark terms in the conversation. One is Julius Steinberger from the Universities of Lausanne and Leeds. The other is our guest, Dr. James Dyke, Associate Professor in Earth System Science at the University of Exeter from the UK. James Dyke, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Well, uh, thank you for having me. What did you see in the early spring heat wave that struck Pakistan and North India this year? 
Well, what we saw was really quite exceptional temperatures for this time of year. Obviously, these regions are in quite hot places. The people there are used to what we consider to be very extreme temperatures. But I don't think we've really seen a spring heat wave like this. I can't remember how far back you'd have to go, but you'd have to be quite some way. So it was really extreme heat, and it was a brutal heat wave because it was protracted. One of the one of the ways that heat waves kill people is that it's not just very high temperatures during the day, but it's sustained temperatures overnight as well. And what you do, you take away people's adaptive capacity, you take away their ability to cool down at night. And to compound matters further, the heat wave was putting additional stress on the energy systems, because you can imagine that refrigeration, air conditioning was, uh, use was increasing. And so they were beginning to have brownouts, they were beginning to have failures of the uh, electricity grid, which meant that some air conditioning units or some air conditioning spaces were, were not available anymore. So you're taking away the opportunity for people to cool down and to recover from the extreme heat. And so there's, there would have been um, an increase in the number of people who not just suffered from this crippling heat, but would also have died. And then we have the possibilities of crops. I noticed that North India has uh, prevented the export of wheat now, and they were an exporter that were expected to pick up some of the slack uh, from what's not coming in from Ukraine and Russia. So there could be global impacts from that heat wave. One of the things we're really worried about in terms of, let's call it the climate and the ecological crisis, which is sort of the full spectrum of the ways in which we're impacting the Earth system and changing the Earth system in ways that are just going to be bad for us is not just the incidence of these extreme weather events, whether it's a heat wave or a devastating storm. It's the cumulative pressures it puts on our abilities to gain access to food, to fresh water, to energy systems. And so when you've got a heat wave in one place, when you've got the the war in Ukraine, and Ukraine being unable to export a significant amount of its crops, when you've got these um, kind of simultaneous pressures on the food system. It doesn't take much for it to significantly destabilize it. And because we live in a globalized food production system, these are commodities often traded, sometimes just a hint of an inability of a region to produce significant surplus so if an exporter is enough to increase prices, which then, you know, within a few hours can plunge potentially millions of people into food insecurity because they can't afford to eat anymore. So it's these kind of interacting and synergistic aspects of the climate and ecological crisis which are just as worrying, if not more worrying, actually, and passing particular thresholds. As you point out in your article, quote, the World Meteorological Organization estimates there's now a 50-50 chance that temperatures will exceed 1.5 degrees C one year within the next five, end quote. 1.5 was supposed to be the end-of-century goal. James, is the Paris Agreement broken already? But the question is the Paris Agreement broken, um, I would say yes. There are no credible ways or pathways at the moment, given the existing political economic systems that we've got, that we are going to limit warming to more than 1.5. So I think, in that respect, the Paris Agreement has failed. What the World Meteorological Organization is talking about is when could we expect the first year, the first annual global temperature to exceed 1.5 Ten years ago, the probability of that in the next five years or so would have been zero. It just wasn't, you can't really imagine how that would happen. But because there's been a cumulative increase in the temperatures on the Earth, because, you know, we keep emitting more greenhouse gases, we're increasing the energy imbalance of the Earth system, 
it's now becoming increasingly likely that it will be one year in which we will see temperature exceed. What will probably happen is then in the next year or subsequent year, temperatures will go back down a bit because there's natural variability. But then as we continue, then temperatures are going to pass 1.5 again. So when we're talking about the Paris Agreement, what the Paris Agreement was centred around was the long-term average. So it wasn't a particular year. If we take an average of temperatures over, let's say, about five years, because what we're trying to do, we're trying to arrest the increasing trend in global temperature increases, right? So the fact that we might see, in fact, it's pretty much inevitable that we will see temperatures exceeding 1.5 degrees in the next five or certainly the next 10 years or so, doesn't mean that suddenly the Paris Agreement gets cancelled. But if we fast forward, let's say, within maybe a decade or perhaps even less, the cumulative increase in heat in the Earth system, the cumulative increases in temperature, I mean, I think that it's pretty much inevitable that that long-term average will be exceeded. And so in that respect, you know, the Paris, Paris Agreement would have been failed. But, sorry, one last thing. There's a get-out clause, and many people don't realise. When you look at the, the Paris Agreement text, it's temperatures by the end of this century. So what we're actually doing at the moment is we're signing ourselves up, we're signing our children, our future generations, into an overshoot scenario where we fully expect temperatures to exceed 1.5 and some probably exceeding 2 degrees Celsius and perhaps beyond. And then through the deployment of large-scale carbon removal technologies that are going to come online sometime around the middle of this century, they will remove significant quantities of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, such that they will drag temperatures back down such that you get to 1.5 by the end of the century. So kind of technically, the Paris Agreement was still alive. Maybe the best you could say at the moment is it's on life support. If we believe the technology will be developed to scale in time, we shall see. Now, on May 11th, meanwhile, the Guardian's Damien Carrington and Matthew Taylor exposed vast projects, as they called it, planned by oil and gas corporations. They call new oil and gas expansion, quote, carbon bombs set to trigger catastrophic climate breakdown. Many of these projects are subsidized, regulated or permitted by governments, and and, uh, we have corporations involved, and then we have all of us flying or driving around. Who is going to be culpable for the known coming deaths from these carbon expansion plans in the 2020s? There's an immediate narrative that it's all the politicians' fault. The politicians have been, or the political process has been captured by fossil fuel interests. I mean, I don't know much about the state of the United States politics, but I don't think it's very controversial to say, or at least to observe, that there's an awful lot of fossil fuel interests in United States politics. But this is a problem that's global. I mean, if you take the United Kingdom, for example, where I live, we develop significant oil and gas resources from the North Sea that generated significant income for the country, literally billions, and we still are extracting oil and gas from the North Sea, and, we, and the current government is still very much committed to continue to export and further expand production as much as it can do. It actually has a, a legal obligation to maximise the economic exploitation of North Sea oil and gas. So you could look at other countries that have got fossil fuel interests, even Norway, very, very progressive country on many of its climate policies, but it's still one of the, you know, a major exporter of oil and gas because it sits on significant reserves up in the North Sea. So you've got this 
the situation where you've generated tremendous money, tremendous wealth, and tremendous power through fossil fuels. And it's no surprise that those who have accrued that wealth, that power, that influence, aren't in any mind to give it up anytime soon. So I completely, I'm very, very sympathetic to the narrative which says that the problem is primarily around fossil fuel companies, the energy companies, and the political systems, almost the politicians which are clients to that concentration of power. But that said, we all do have an impact. We all, we all have an effect. And certainly the things that we can do can change, whether that's in terms of your lifestyle, whether that's in terms of your, your political involvement, whether it's how you vote or how you engage with your elected representative or whether or not you have to take some forms of activism. But certainly I do think it's a mistake to, to emphasise that somehow it's a really, really hard problem to solve because of the problems of collective or coordinated action. It's very hard to get you know, millions or billions of people to behave in the same way. Absolutely. But it's not as if we don't have routes to safety. It's not as if we don't know how to rapidly decarbonise to make sure that people you know, are energy secure and food secure and all these other things. We don't need to invent new technologies. We don't need to you know, build massive starships to, to Mars or something. It's relatively straightforward. I think it is true to say that the reason we're not doing all of those things and other stuff is because it's not in the interest of a tiny fraction of humanity. You know, during the 1300s, humans experienced a mass die-off from the plague. Now you and your co-author suggest, quote, humanity may be plunged into a period of mass death. I think that's already developing in a way with COVID and with uh, the land wars that we see in Russia and Ukraine. But is it possible that climate change could really bring on a period of mass death? A bit disturbing to think about. Well, I mean, the worst-case scenario that seems to be plausible. But let's kind of just ignore the fact that we could be really unlucky with climate sensitivity. So when, in terms of the climate sensitivity, how much we think the climate is going to warm if, for example, we were to double concentrations of carbon dioxide from pre-industrial levels. So that was, what was it, about 270 or something? So let's say we get from about 270 parts per million to about 540 parts per million. How much warming is that going to get you? And there is still quite a stubborn range of values. We're kind of narrowing it down over time, but we could be unlucky about how sensitive the Earth's climate is. It might warm an awful lot more than we think. We might be unlucky about the activation of certain tipping points. Um, we might see the collapse of... Well, I think we're certainly going to see the collapse of the Greenland and, and the and Western Antarctic ice sheets, but we think those things are going to happen very, very slowly. We might be unlucky and that might happen faster. We are beginning to see increasing signals of instability in the Amazon rainforest, and we might be unlucky, and that might unfold faster. We might be unlucky with natural variation. The sun might go through a period of increasing its luminosity, increasing the amount of energy in such a way that it kind of amplifies or boosts the, the kind of the human element of global warming. But even if you kind of ignore those things, say that we're not going to be unlucky, it's still the case that there are plausible paths to us warming the climate by about up to maybe even beyond four degrees Celsius since pre-industrial periods. And John Schoenhuber, the founder of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research and the long-term champion for the two degrees Celsius is the, the kind of the guardrail with the point at which we must not go beyond, I think explains it most concisely and effectively 
when somebody asked him, what's the difference between two degrees Celsius and four degrees Celsius by the end of the century? And he simply said civilization. Because you don't have billions of people alive on planet Earth. Significant regions of the tropics would be literally uninhabitable. And whatever's left of humanity is in the higher latitudes in, in North America, Canada, and, and Northern Europe. So that would be you know, a, a catastrophic, an apocalyptic, essentially, scenario where you really are looking at billions of people perishing. And it is quite extraordinary when you think about what is at stake that we still are in no way guaranteed to avert that outcome. People are talking about 1.5 and you know, soft landing. I think that's wildly optimistic. It's still the case that we have the potential to warm the climate so much that we could significantly destroy a significant fraction of our civilization. Now, speaking about climate injustice, Already, the world is tilting towards an economic crisis before we even get into the worst of climate change. I was looking at a uh, YouTube video of a May 14th Gravitas program on why, and an Indian journalist, Palki Sharma, finds reports showing the economies of 70 developing countries could fail just as Sri Lanka is doing now. And those are expected to possibly tumble even in 2022. What happens to less developed people if the world warms three degrees C by mid-century, as some people predict? Well, certainly nothing good at three degrees C. One of the reasons we established the safe barrier, or the, the, the threshold for the dangerous climate change of 1.5 degrees, which was established back in Paris in 2015, was an understanding that the better the science becomes, the better we are able to resolve climate impacts, the better we understood that actually beyond 1.5, significant numbers of people are going to be seriously at risk. And previously, the idea was about 2 degrees Celsius. That was what we hoped we could limit warming to, but really beyond 1.5 is certainly dangerous. So, you know, certain low-lying island nation states will literally cease to exist because they will be underwater. You know, people in Deltic regions in the global developing south will either have to flee or they will perish. So the, the thing to bear in mind about the differences in temperature, whether it's beyond 1.5 or 0.6 or 0.7, is essentially every fraction of degree does matter. And the question that we've got is how many people are we willing to see die as a consequence of our continued use of fossil fuels? Because as temperatures go up higher and higher then more and more people will be exposed. There'll be more suffering and death. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Dr. James Dyke from the University of Exeter. And before we get back to the climate crisis, I want to look at a series of papers that you co-authored which evaluate the relationships between intensified agriculture and impacts to the ecological systems around them. Modern farming is a boon. It feeds billions more people than before, but is it possible the agri-food sector can also become a threat to humanity if mismanaged? Well, certainly in terms of impacts on the, on the climate, and not just the climate, but the Earth system in terms of biodiversity, biogeochemical cycles, hydrological cycle, agriculture is the most damaging thing that humans have ever done and, and probably will ever do. But you are completely right. It was the, the Green Revolution in the 1950s, you know, the post-Second World War, increase in mechanization, increase in use in fossil fuels to produce fertilizers, to run machinery, the selective breeding of high-yielding uh, crops, spe specific development of very tolerant 
crops to things like water stress and, and crops which are able to thrive in conditions of high nutrient input and high pesticide input that averted you know, a global catastrophe, averted global hunger. Certainly when you were looking at some of the, the outlooks of the 1950s and 60s, given the very significant increase in population and some of the economic headwinds that the world was facing at that time, it really was, I mean, miraculous that we were able to increase not just the total amount of land service area that was brought into cultivation, but really increase the intensity of that cultivation, you know, the increasing yields per hectare. Well, of course, that came with a, co- with a cost, and it's come at a cost of devastating biodiversity in driving the climate crisis because you know, agriculture is, a, is a, an important contributor to greenhouse gases, mainly through deforestation, so land use change, and then so many ruminant animals, so many cattle, which uh, produce an awful lot of methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. So it's been understood for many years now. I mean, you can go back to the... In 1972, in the Stockholm Conference on the, on the, on the Environment, that just, even though we've got this tremendous success of the Green Revolution, we can't continue to do that because the Earth system processes, which we all ultimately rely on, are beginning to fray when you've got such an intensive mode of agriculture, such an intensive mode of production and consumption. So when we're talking about uh, these issues today, we're, we're using terms such as sustainable intensification or the second uh, green revolution or a greener revolution, the idea that somehow we need to continue to increase yields but do that in a way which decreases our impacts on the environment. Now, in my opinion, I think the only way you're going to get a soft landing at a sustainable agricultural system is one which really does address the issue of the barn side. So what do people eat? Diets. Because when you look through certainly in the United States, United Kingdom, Europe, you know, the, just to give you one example, the intensity of meat consumption is, I think, by any definition, unsustainable. There is too much meat which is consumed, which is putting too much pressure on the land, which is producing too many impacts on biodiversity and the climate. So as much as there's lots of excitement around technology and clever ways, you know, using drones to plant seeds or drones to, you know, to remove pathogens and pests from crops and IP addresses for plants and hydroponics, I think we also, at the same time, really do need to look at what people eat because that's going to have two immediate benefits. It's going to reduce environmental impact and it's also going to have a potentially transformative effect on people's health, given that we are currently in an obesity crisis. Yes, well, let's take the UK as a case study, as you did. Is sustainable agricultural possible on your home island? Absolutely, it is. And I don't know to what extent the United Kingdom could be 100%, let's say, food um, secure. Sometimes it's called food sovereignty. What we need to understand, certainly the last 30, 40 years, we've become more and more enmeshed into a global food system. A global food system which is largely controlled by a very, very small number of companies. If you look at your groceries and look at the companies that are producing that food and then who owns those companies and then who owns those companies, and then if you look at where the food is being um, produced and who owns the, the producers. You know, there is a global food system which is actually highly centralized um, because it is it's a global commodity. But when you just do you know, like the basic maths, let's say, of how much energy do people need 
and what kind of diets could supply that energy, so a good, nutritious diet, and then the kind of farming systems that you could use to generate uh, the food for, that would satisfy those diets. And certainly the UK could be an awful lot more food secure than it is. Right? Um, and that's even under a number of different kind of climate change scenario impacts. Other places, absolutely not. There will be other places that if we do warm significantly beyond 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius, they would be facing serious challenges in their ability to grow food. And in many instances, I think you would see their agricultural systems just ceasing to function. I wonder if G7 countries have the illusion uh, that we can create islands where the consumer lifestyle continues even while billions of people uh, fall victim to the climate crisis and the economic problems that we see. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Dr. James Dyke from the University of Exeter. And as you wrap up your article with Julia in the conversation, you link to Scientists for Extinction Rebellion. I talked to one of those scientists in our April 20th show. James, where are you in the spectrum of climate research and activism? That's a very interesting question. So it's one thing that I'm, I'm currently progressive with an organization that I'm a part of called Faculty for a Future, which tries to connect academics across the world, so it's an international network. And I suppose it's based on the premise that there must be something in between writing research papers and getting arrested. So there's got to be something that academics can do to progress, let's say, climate justice, above and beyond the day job, but without having to face getting a criminal record. Um, and I'm having a lot of these conversations with academics of all different stripes and persuasions. So, you know, undergraduate students, postdoctoral students, tenured professors, very senior members of the academic community who are kind of stumbling around trying to understand what is it can I, can I do above and beyond, let's say, the day job because there is a real, I think, realisation, maybe in some instances with dawning realisation, maybe for some people they know it for years, that it's you know, academia should be taking a lead role in helping humanity avert the climate catastrophe. And I, and I think for many people, you just look at how academics and how academia is being almost a servant to some of the very destructive impulses of society and industrialization, and that they need to do more. So it's a really important question. I mean, I've been on protests, I do marches, I, I, I participate... I thus far have not undertaken any kind of non-violent direct action. I haven't sought to break the law. I haven't sought to get arrested. Um, whether I'm, I'm in my own form of denial and that I still think I can be productive um, and make a difference by doing the work I do, I don't know. I'm open to that charge, I suppose. Well, we still need scientists, for sure, out of jail and, and doing the research that we need to know what is happening with the natural world, and we are seeing more scientists stand up against mass suicide by fossil fuels. What I am not seeing is enough major academic institutions do the same. We're not really seeing University College London, Harvard, or Stanford fighting hard enough to avoid real climate catastrophe that will affect the very students they're trying to educate. 
Yeah, it's a real... I mean, there have been a number of very high-profile incidents where universities are taking quite significant money from, let's say, energy majors, specifically in order to allow the continued exploitation of fossil fuels. And obviously, that's pretty bad PR. But there has been a very long-running relationship between universities in the United States, the United Kingdom, other places, because obviously energy majors need a continual supply of very smart, very motivated geoscientists, engineers, economists. You know, there are still hundreds of thousands of people in well, millions around the world directly or indirectly employed by um, the fossil fuel industries, coal, oil and gas. And they need a constant supply of talented, uh, for a talented workforce. And at universities, one of our jobs is to mint productive members of society. So there's been, there's been a long-standing relationship between uh, the fossil fuel industries and higher education across the world. I think when you're talking about the broader relationship with the broader responsibility that universities and academia have got for the climate and ecological crisis, many universities are doing what they think they can and they are making you know, good, good attempts at reducing their carbon emissions. But I was having this discussion the other day. You reach a point where you kind of get all the low-hanging fruit in terms of, let's say, carbon emissions. And then you realise that to go further, to really be, to really zero out your carbon emissions and maybe even become um, a positive uh, climate force, you kind of butt up against the, some of the core aspects of the missions of the institutions, whether it's a, a university or a business. And universities are increasingly a business and they are there to continue to seek funding, to gain funding, to increase their numbers of students, to increase their numbers of international students. And all of that necessarily means emissions, all of that necessarily means environmental impacts. And so when you get down past the hard, get down into the kind of the hard to achieve aspects of decarbonisation or becoming you know, climate positive, it does open up some, I think, really interesting discussions where you can ask, I think legitimately ask, you know, what is a university for? What is that institution's mission? And if it's not taking a lead on the climate and the ecological crisis, then I think wider society has got a legitimate set of questions to pose to it. Well, as we wrap up here, James, what are you working on these days? Oh, wow. I don't know, to be, I don't know, to be honest. I'm all, I do lots of different things. I think I'm increasingly becoming interested in work beyond academia, to be honest. Um, I do a I'm still doing a lot of teaching, and that really motivates me in academia. So I lead a postgraduate program on sustainability, which gives me a good opportunity to work with some really smart and motivated and, and bright people. I think that's almost my kind of therapy. Right? I think if I didn't have that, I'd be an awful lot more depressed than I was because I get challenged by them, and they inspire me, and I see ways that they think about things differently. I think one of the problems, one of the um, one of the dangers or risks when you work in this area for any period of time is that you, it's easy to fall into fatalism because you try the same thing, or you see the same thing being tried, and nothing fundamental happens, or rather the radical things that you know are required don't happen, and it's easy to fall into a sense of despondency where you know what difference can I make, and that's why I think one of the real powers of education is that when you're wor working with younger people, is they do see things differently. There's a, there's a generational gap, which just isn't a gap in time. I think it is in many instances, it's a real 
significant difference in worldview. And it's through those different worldviews that I think we will be able to navigate through this current crisis and actually, you know, arrive at not just the world which is kind of okay, we managed to hang on, but a world that's actually going to be much, much better than it is today. So my academic practice is really important. And in terms of my research, I suppose I'm becoming increasingly interested in, let's say, us telling the truth about the climate and ecological crisis. It's still a little bit too much attempt to manage the message uh, to not scare people or frighten people or... or, um, I mean, in the worst-case instance, it's imagining future technological salvation, which is really just another form of delay. It's stopping us from the reckoning that we, that we really do need to have now. So those two aspects, wanting to tell the truth and trying to be as constructive in that truth-telling as possible, and then working with younger people or younger generations, um, helping educate that younger generation who are going to have to live the rest of their lives through the need to navigate through this crisis is um, something that I think I can make a contribution to, but also probably thinking about it is is something that I kind of need to do in order to feel that I am being productive. We've been speaking with Dr. James Dyke, Assistant Director of the Global Systems Institute at the University of Exeter in the UK. You can find links to follow up on all this in my show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. In 2021, Western North America suffered a massive heat dome, hotter than all records for that time of year. It was a major event in climate change. Accompanied by drought and massive wildfires, in British Columbia alone, hundreds of people died of unbearable heat. How bad was it? Just published in the journal Science Advances this paper, the 2021 Western North America heat wave among the most extreme events ever recorded globally. The lead author is Dr. Vicki Thompson, Senior Research Associate at the School of Geographical Sciences, University of Bristol in the UK. From Bristol, Vicki Thompson, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you for having me. Attribution of these weird weather events relative to climate, it's getting faster and faster. Experts are learning in to hone in on these localized and fast-moving events. What were your thoughts when you heard about the heat dome in Western North America in that June of 2021, and how did that get to the top of your to-do list scientifically? Well, when the event happened, it was it was shocking, the, the magnitude um, that we saw. It was five, almost five degrees hotter than had previously been experienced in that area. And that sounds impossible before it happened. So straight away, I was interested in whether, whether this could happen elsewhere and whether maybe it had already happened elsewhere, um, that maybe parts of the world where we weren't documenting the records so well and less people live so it wasn't impacting as many people. And we decided to see whether whether that was the case. And there were other heat waves that um, had been as as large, but without the severe impacts that we saw from the North American heat wave. Yes, a heat event doesn't provide moving news footage like a tornado or a cyclone, but extreme heat kills more people by far than storms do. Why do you think it is we know so little about the history of very extreme heat? Yeah, I was surprised this was the deadliest event in Canadian history, deadliest weather event in Canadian history. So that shows just how severe the impacts of these events can be. 
uh, but the impacts are getting getting larger year on year as the impacts get bigger. So historically, heat won't have been such a major issue, particularly in Canada and northern U.S., um, but we can see it starting to have uh, increasing impacts on agriculture, infrastructure, and everybody's lives. Right. My studio is near the epicenter of that big heat burst last June. About a third of my garden died despite watering and care and shading and everything I could do. Everyone hid indoors with air conditioning blasting, and we worried about the, the fires that were around us. It seemed like a historic climate-driven event. Can we really call it that? Well, I think our work shows that. It was one of the biggest events ever seen. Um, But surprisingly, it's not the greatest heat wave. There were some bigger ones historically. And unfortunately, we are going to have to start preparing for these events becoming much more regular, and they'll become less memorable as they start happening more often. There's some interesting bits in your paper about the relationship between drought and heat. Scientists at the Helmholtz Center for Environmental Research in Leipzig, they published a paper in March 2022 about compound hot-dry events. How does drought-dry ground push temperatures even higher? So when the ground is uh, drier, any heat in the air will go straight into, or any, any energy in the air will go straight into heating up the air. We won't need to use any of that energy to heat up the water and water can absorb quite a lot of energy it takes quite a bit of energy to heat up the evaporate the puddles and the groundwater away so the less water that's around the faster the energy will act to heat up the atmosphere instead uh, which will drive the temperatures up much faster in a dry condition and indeed the western north uh, america region had its driest june in records so since 1950 uh, preceding the heat wave last year but you did find atmospheric conditions, not drought, were the biggest driver of the western heat storm. And here we get into something called planetary waves. I think our public understands the jet stream, but less about what a planetary wave is. Could you discuss those for us? Um, yes, it uh, appeared that the planetary wave that affected this event um, originated in the uh, North Atlantic. And it was a, a, a wave of pressure around the globe. So there were low pressure and high pressure and then low pressure and then high pressure um, going all the way around the globe, um, leading to a high pressure area over that region that experienced the hot air. So that was the the heat dome, that high pressure area. Um, And they can be triggered by all sorts of things. So this one was in the North Atlantic. It might have been a slightly anomalous uh, wind pattern or slightly warmer water. And then there's this atmospheric wave triggered um, that in this case appeared to go all the way around the world. According to a map in your paper, the June 2021 heat storm over western Canada and the United States was just one of five bubbles of heat there. And is that a wave five state of planetary waves? Is that unusual? Do scientists expect to see more of them as the world heats up two degrees or more? Um, It was the intensity of this one that's surprising. So that sort of atmospheric uh, circulation pattern would be fairly uh, common. It would happen quite often that the uh, magnitude of that high-pressure system over North America was um, exceptional. That was the highest pressure for that region in our record since 1950 for that time of year. Uh, It might be slightly earlier in the year than is often expected, um, as the heat wave was earlier than that sort of heat is expected in that area. I just want to be sure we're clear on this. Is the planetary wave different? than those great big bends and waves we see in the jet stream, or do the two uh, relate to one another? What do you think? Yeah, the two the two are linked. So it's all up 
or higher atmospheric uh, patterns and how how they circulate around the world they're they're linked so the the location of the jet stream could help impact uh, influence it as well your study begins with heat records since 1968 surely people around the world have been recording temperatures daily for over 100 years why did you not compare our current heat waves with what our grandparents experienced uh, going back further uh, the data that we chose to use is available from the 1950s. Um, this is a data set of the whole of the globe, um, and it's hard to get such data sets that cover everywhere from much earlier. Um, so this one, this data set was ERA 5 from the ECMWF um, in Europe, and it's a global data set of temperature, there's other variables as well, that's spatially complete all the way through from 1950s onwards. So some of that is from observations, but um, there's gaps in the observations, um, particularly in, say, parts of Africa. So those are filled in with forecasting models as well. So although there are observations from some locations going much further into history, there isn't as, as much of a globally complete data set, which is why we only started from the 1950s. And your study shows last June's heat dorm over the West, as you said, was not really the most shocking change from normal in the last few decades. Where was the record set? So we found uh, the number one global heat wave was from Southeast Asia in 1998. Um, that event was linked to the uh, El Nino conditions of that year, and it was, in fact, 16 days from, from a month that all showed uh, heat more extreme than was seen in the Western North America heat wave. And by extreme, we mean um, extreme compared to the local, the normal local conditions. So it's in terms of standard deviation of the local conditions rather than just the absolute magnitude of the heat wave. What is a standard deviation? The data we assume can be um, thought of as a normal distribution, uh, which is uh, that more of the data will be around the mean and then there'll be less towards the tails. And um, uh, mathematicians have a term standard deviation, um, so 60% of, about 60% of the data will be within one standard deviation of the mean value. So the further out, the more standard deviations we are, the further from the mean the point is. And in fact, uh, I think it's 0.1% of data is beyond three standard deviations. And the Western North America event was 3.6 standard deviations. So it's in... Uh, very, very far tails of what would be expected. Um, I think it's one in a thousand event from um, being that deviated from the mean. Well, prior to climate change, we might have assumed that such um, a rare event would be rare and, and perhaps not come again for hundreds of years. But now it looks like it could happen more often. What do you think about that? Yeah, one of the things that we look at is using a climate model. We look at how how likely the event would be in the future. Um, so using this climate model, we find that in the current world, it's a 1 in 5,000 uh, year event, so 0.02% likelihood of happening. So it was a very unusual event. But uh, if we look out to the end of the century, we find it becomes a 1 in 6 year or a 16% likelihood event, so much more frequent. Um, I do need to say that with a caveat because we're using a model that has uh, a high climate sensitivity, which means it warms up faster than some of the other uh, climate models around. Um, but we felt that we should use that one to show the worst-case scenario of what could happen, because that model could be an accurate representation of the future.
From my interviews, that sounds like the path we are currently on. But as you say, we could take a a turn and slash our emissions and take some actions and, and possibly not get to the worst case scenario. But we need to know what it is. Now, you just talked about the heat event in Southeast Asia. We'll, we'll talk about like Cambodia, Thailand, Laos, uh, maybe the Philippines in Southeast Asia. But you previously led a study on unprecedented hot months in Southeast China. So South China, too, is looking at more extreme heat? Yes, we found in that one that, or like everywhere globally, more extremes are likely to happen as we go into the future. Uh, I don't think there'll be anywhere that the climate models would suggest are going to see less extremes into the future. I wonder if the extreme heat recently striking Pakistan and northern India will show up in a study soon. Yeah, we've uh, been thinking about that in the last week. Um, In our study, we find that India and Pakistan have a fairly low extreme currently. So it almost looks as if they've been quite lucky not to have a more extreme event yet. So and what's happening at the moment, it looks like they are experiencing that that larger extreme that our work maybe suggests is quite likely for that area. Yes, you do warn that some places have been lucky so far. They may not have been hit with record bursting heat, but that may well come. So what is the worry there? Can you give us any examples as well? Yeah, India is one of those regions, and there's some regions in uh, Central Africa and also parts of Australia And one of our biggest worries with those areas is they haven't experienced extreme heat yet, so they're not as prepared as some areas. So in Western North America, now it's been experienced, people maybe know know what to expect better if it happens again and know that the impacts, what impacts are going to happen and how to protect themselves. But in these places that have been lucky, the people won't be so aware of the health impacts of the heat and how to protect themselves and what they need to be looking out for when the heat comes. Um, so it could be that the impacts could be much greater just due to lack of lack of awareness and lack of preparedness for the event. Yes, we were not prepared in British Columbia. I mean, it's Canada, and it's a, a coastal Canada, and things just don't get that hot. Some people don't have air conditioning. A lot of people don't have AC on the coast, for sure. And uh, we didn't have cooling centers. We didn't have a warning system set up. The government uh, didn't think that could happen. So it does show how we need to raise our preparedness, and I think your science helps us do that. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with Dr. Vicki Thompson from the University of Bristol, UK. Your work shows the importance of what we choose as normal. If we say normal comes from averages and records during the previous decade, well, it looks like maybe extreme heat events don't increase much more as the world warms. But if we look at what people a few decades ago experienced, there will be more superheat events to worry about in the future. Did I get that right? Did I understand it correctly? Yes, that's right. So compared to the previous decade, um, we find that there's no trend in the extremes. They are uh, staying the same compared to the, the climatology. But obviously the climatology is increasing through time. We, we see that climate change is warming the world. So as the world warms, the extremes will get greater. A problem for our listeners, though, is that a skeptic or a very conservative person could read this paper and almost conclude that heat events won't get that much worse with climate change, whereas someone else sees a gravely increased risk in your results. How would you summarize your findings for the future of extreme heat? Well, we 
show that extremes are projected to get more frequent and uh, more intense, and I doubt anybody would could see that as a good situation to be in. Are there some places we could all move to and, and feel immune to extreme heat waves? Um, well, the way we're looking at the extremes, we're comparing them to the local local climatology. So if you move somewhere colder, um, the extremes would be smaller in magnitude, but what our work shows is the extremes will still be greater um, or yeah, greater compared to what that area is used to. So humans might be able to adapt by moving, but there's so much more to the world. The ecosystems, they can't just relocate to an area where it's a bit cooler so the extremes aren't so great. Um, in the event in Western North America, lots of ecosystems will be affected. The wildfires will have savaged the forests, and I know lots of the coastal uh, intertidal regions have lost a lot of their... Um, the range of species, that sort of impact we can't adapt for as easily just by moving to a better place. As I understand it, your new research used two major classes of tools, climate models and reanalysis. What is reanalysis, and how does that help us understand recent and maybe future extreme heat? So we use a reanalysis product, which is um, close to an observational product. It's allows us to have a complete data set for the whole of the world, um, going all the way back to 1950, which merges the observations and the f- best forecasting models to fill in any gaps where we don't have observations. Um, so that product's available his- historically uh, from the 1950s. There are some that go further back in time, but we chose to use one from the 1950s. So they go all the way up to the present day and allow you to look at extremes all across the globe, even in areas where the observational records aren't so accurate. And there are hurricane centers keeping records for big storms around the world. We have storm chasers and terrific statisticians like Bob Henson of the Weather Underground. Is there an international organization or consortium tracking big heat events? Not as far as I'm aware of. Um, One of the hard hard problems with that would be it's very hard to define a heat wave globally. There is an attempt to define it as anywhere where the temperature is above 40 degrees and a certain amount above normal for a certain amount of days. But I live in the UK. Where I live, 40 degrees would be um, astounding. It's a heat wave when it's much cooler than that. So it's hard to have a global measure for it. But each country, there's lots of countries, um, meteorological uh, centers do have a a more localized record of heat waves. It's interesting you say that because I talked to a Greek scientist who said, well, and he was in northern Australia as well, measuring heat waves there. He said, uh, we get a hot day in, in Greece that would cause all sorts of alarms in Britain. People would be uh, leaving their jobs and heading for the beaches if they got the same weather. So there is an adaptation of populations to what they expect. And I think that's the one of the important parts of this paper is that the unexpected can happen now. Yes, I'm sure nobody was expecting the temperatures um, that were experienced last last summer in in Western North America. One of our villages burned down. Yeah, that was Lytton, wasn't it? That was the location of that 4.6 degrees warmer than had ever been recorded anywhere in Canada. So, Vicky, you're involved in using complex tools to analyze mountains of data. You publish climate papers in some of the top journals. But as far as I can see, you were not trained as a climatologist. Your doctorate is in philosophy. How and why did you make this transition into hard climate science? Um, 
the, the term doctorate in philosophy is just the UK's term for a science degree. So I did do a, a PhD in meteorology. Yeah. <laughs> I was totally taken in by that. I'm glad you cleared that up. I think our North American listeners will get it. <laughs> what, what are you working on next? Um, well, I'm hoping to continue working on these global heat waves and looking into some of those regions which I have, I, I termed it, have been lucky so far not to experience the heat waves. So to look at the risks in those areas to help understand what could happen and whether those areas are likely to see the record-smashing events that we've seen elsewhere. The one that makes me the most nervous is if two out of the three breadbaskets, as they call them, are hit at the same time. We had in 2010 the Russian heat wave where Russia stopped exporting wheat, which drove a famine and, and some say revolution in North Africa just for lack of food. And But it was okay in North America. But if North America and Russia and other parts of the world like India who produce a lot of wheat are all hit at the same time, then we're in big trouble. Yes, that would be. that's a really interesting area of research. I was involved with some work um, looking at provinces in China, looking at the, uh, the food security just across China and whether multiple regions of China could be affected at the same time by hot and dry conditions at the wrong times for the crops there. But similar studies could be applied um, to multiple regions to look at the risk of uh, the states and Russia experiencing cold or hot at the wrong time for the crops. Um, and that's definitely an area that needs needs more research. From the University of Bristol, we've been speaking with Dr. Vicki Thompson, Senior Research Associate at the School of Geographical Sciences. You can find links to this new open access paper. That means it's free for you to read. And it's about extreme heat, and it's in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Vicki, thank you for sharing your work with us. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to this latest attempt at climate truth. Next week, we have more science, of course, but also Britt Ray, author of Generation Dread. Generation Dread.